Amen. Thank you so much. Good morning. I'd love for you to take your Bibles now and turn with me as we make our way into Acts chapter 21. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture today that has got some wrinkles in it. We'll, by God's grace, try to iron out the wrinkles because it has to do with discerning the will of God. And you've got people who are who are viewing the will of God from various points of view, and they're not necessarily all seeing it the same way. What happens when that takes place in your own personal experiences? Well, I'd love to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to take it down through verse 7 and try to get a, a sense of the flow of the passage as to where this is going to take us. And this morning, what I want to do is to explore with you to the degree possible, the whole subject of the will of God and how it relates to our lives, but it's only going to be governed by this text and nothing beyond. Verse 1, I'll take it down through verse 7, and here now you find these words, <coughs> and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cuz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, and we went aboard, set sail. And we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So very clearly, they've got a, a view of the will of God for Paul, and then Paul has a view of the will of God for Paul. And the real question is, what's God's will in all of this? And how does God view his will for Paul? As we look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, we're thanking you so much for being our God. You're the sovereign one. You guide us. You direct us. You are the one who's in control even when it seems as though life is out of control. And so, Father, what we're praying now is that through the working of the Holy Spirit, you'll guide and direct in very distinctive ways. And if there's anyone in one of the services today, prior, current, for those that are watching online, that are grappling in some way, some shape, some form, with your will for their lives, I pray, Lord, that we'll be able to perhaps draw some operating principles that will equip us, assist us to be able to discern more effectively how it is you're guiding, where it is you're leading. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our oh Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. I'm praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say that of all the great 
definitions of the will of God, of all the great descriptions of the will of God, and perhaps the most classic statement regarding the will of God was uttered by, by Richard Baxter, who in his latter days, surveying the history of his life, would pray, Lord, what thou wilt, where thou wilt, when thou wilt. Let me say it again. Lord, what thou wilt, where thou wilt, when thou wilt. Now, this classic statement that was delivered centuries before permeates our our everyday life experiences. Sort of thing that we could contemporize the wording and still apply to our own life situation. What I want to do is to look at these 16 verses this morning with that classic statement in mind. And what we're going to do is to draw out three what I will call anticipations that are found in these verses that equip you and me when we're projecting ahead into the future what to anticipate and how to prepare as it relates to the way in which God connects us from today into our tomorrows. Three anticipations. Now, the first flows out of verse 1 down through verse 6. When you and I, when we pursue God's will wholeheartedly, we should anticipate, first of all, the loving concerns expressed by believers. Now, when they express their concerns, they're going to express it from their compassionate concern for you. But compassionate concern for you is not necessarily synonymous with God's will for you. Maybe, maybe not. And what I want to do with you now is to begin to develop biblical distinctives to equip us to be able to discern God's will when God's people might be saying one thing, God's Holy Spirit is prompting you to do something different. You're going to notice in the beginning of verse 1, the physician Luke writes, and when we had parted from them and set sail, He's alluding to something that had just transpired in the prior chapter. The Apostle Paul, you see, had spent time with the elders of Ephesus, and they were now at the shoreline of Miletus, and they were having to say goodbye. And parting is such sweet sorrow, they say, but sometimes it's less than even sweet. It's, it's, it's very painful. Because the Greek word here for part carries with it, in verse 1, the idea of tearing apart. In other words, what I'm saying is that sometimes when you're doing the will of God, departures don't necessarily go smoothly. Sometimes departures involve a tearing. I'll use a personal example. After a long Sunday, where I had spoken four times, and then a long Monday of board meetings and so on, uh, early Tuesday morning, I hopped in the vehicle, headed off to Michigan, where I would join my sister in um, 
assisting our father in his cancer treatments. And then talking with physicians and so on, headed back to the house, make sure dad was properly situated, and then had to make my way back for a, a long rest of the week. Time and again, when it was the point of departure, I would hop in my vehicle, and as I was pulling down the driveway, mom and dad, maybe you've gone through something similar in your own life experiences, your own relationships, they would walk out of the house, head down the driveway, stand and start waving. My father was a bit emaciated by that point. I began driving down the street. There they are at the curb. They're still waving. I get to the end of the street. I'm about to turn. There they are, full-fledged waving. Now, I had to get back to y'all. Uh, the challenge was this. Um, God had led me, uh, so it seems, here. And at the same time, I had to care for them there, honoring father and mother. So when you pull out of the driveways of life, don't always expect that the will of God will be such that it's going to be an easy farewell. Sometimes there are going to be emotional tearings that occur when you're in the midst of pursuing the will of God in your own personal life journey. This was the case for Paul. Not every departure went easy. Sometimes it was gut-wrenching. There is this emotional tearing here because the amount of time he had poured in to these elders. So in verse 1, when we had parted, when we had torn apart from them, Set sail. Well, we came by a straight course to cause the next day to Rhodes. When he gets to Rhodes, there's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes. And he then from there makes his way to Patara. Now, every time one of these islands or settings are mentioned, what it pertains to is the fact that he has reached the port. One of my favorite volumes in my library in the office here, I've also got a library back at home, is by William Ramsey in his book, Paul the Traveler and Roman Citizen. And he tracks the sailing expeditions of the Apostle Paul. The reason the ship did not sail at night lies in the wind, which in the Aegean during the summer generally blows from the north, beginning at a very early hour in the morning. In the late afternoon, it dies away. At sunset, there is a dead calm. And thereafter, a gentle south wind arises and blows during the night. Well, it was that north wind here that allowed the ship to run a straight course. So he's running the straight course. You've completed now verse 1, and you're thinking about the way in which, in which the Apostle Paul now is pursuing the will of God. It's his objective to get to Jerusalem for two particular reasons. One, he is carrying with him, he and his companions, seven of them, 
uh, the financial gifts necessary to be able to minister to the people in Jerusalem that are hurting. It's a famine relief type ministry. But number two, by doing so, he is taking the gifts from the Gentile churches and delivering them to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, saying that though there are, there are distinctives between Gentile believers and Jewish believers, we are one people. We are one people. And so now, this would give evidence of the fact in Jerusalem, where people were more provincial and didn't travel very far, not necessarily the most cosmopolitan sorts, that we are one people, Jew and Gentile believers. So having found a ship now, uh, crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. It's going to be about 400 miles. Let's take a look at the map, try to get our bearings at this point, see where we were, see where we're headed. And you're going to notice with me at this point that having left the shoreline, he begins to head away from what we now know as modern-day Turkey, on Kos, Rhodes, Patara. And then you can see as he is shifting out of the Aegean, he's making this trek now onward towards Tyre. And as he makes his way onwards towards that this is the type of ship that he would have been traveling in. It would have been a, an agricultural ship. Notice that it's a single mast, which means then you're not going to be able to necessarily adjust yourself to the winds. That's why they traveled during the day, and that's why they slept at port at night. Single mast, and there we have the Apostle Paul as he is making his way southward. So now, you're looking at that then, and what you're saying to yourself is that here's a man who understands his priorities, and what I would argue for is that where you find perseverance in life is because you have established a set of priorities for life. Now, the Apostle Paul is tired. He's got to be weary. He's going to have to maintain flexibility in the midst of the challenges of life, understand what's fixed, understand what's flexible, be able to establish the relationship between the priorities of life to the need for perseverance through life in the mission that God gives you. Dr. W.A. Criswell noted one time about something interesting about the flow of the Mississippi River. And even though everyone knows it flows from north to south, he pointed out if you fly the length of the river, you find it at times flows north and at other times west. But ultimately, the river flows south. Starts near Canada, empties into the Gulf of Mexico. But then he made a poignant statement. What really matters is not the river's temporary direction, but rather its ultimate destination. Sometimes in life, it seems as though where you were supposed to be heading southward, God has you shifting northward. But he might take you northward in order to get southward. What, why is this? Well, if you will notice in our insert this morning, what we have to do with the Apostle Paul is to distinguish the ways of God from the will of God. We pursue God's will while accepting God's ways. And sometimes you're going to find, as in the case of the Apostle Paul, your life experience is such that he's going to shift you in a different direction in order to get you to your destination. Such are the ways of God. 
And this requires for us to be able to discern the wisdom of God as it relates to the ways of God for your life and for my life. And now you've made your way in Acts chapter 21 up to this, up to this three. So now we had come in sight of Cyprus. That's where Barnabas, his mentor, had come from. Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre. Now, we're about Tyre, and we'll explore this more in, in just a moment. Tyre is in modern-day Lebanon. There is a, and has been a flourishing Christian community along the Lebanese border, particularly from Tyre up to Beirut. In fact, years ago, I was asked to consider going speak in Beirut. But then Middle Eastern conflict broke out. Things just didn't quite work out that way. There's actually a free church that had been established in Beirut, just north of Tyre in Lebanon. What's fascinating is that in 1948, when the Jews were given national statehood, many Arabs fled from Israel into Lebanon and positioned themselves along the shoreline such as Tyre, upward towards Beirut, Christian Arabs. And so you see a developing Christian Arab congregation unfolding in that region. Fascinating the way in which God works. He will even use the comings and goings of things. And they are trying to find oneness with their Jewish brethren, Messianic Jews, even though they're separated in various countries. Now, onwards. You are now looking at the way in which this is beginning to unfold, and they have poured it, they have begun to unload its cargo, and then all of a sudden, the confusion of discerning God's will as it relates to God's ways comes to the forefront. And maybe you have some of these in your own personal life. Verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, and notice that this carries with the idea that Paul is being very aggressive in his seeking out of Christians, even in new settings, as should you, as should I. He seeks them out. We stayed there for seven days. Slow the pace down, okay? Look what's stated by the physician, Luke, there in verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. What to do? How do you figure that one out? Where do you go to be able to draw insights when you see such things? What we have to bear in mind is that we need to allow the workings of the Holy Spirit in prior times and the way in which he guided us and directed us to illuminate our minds regarding the present times and how God is guiding us and directing us. What if those you love who know Jesus as Lord and Savior are in essence, to using the phraseology here, say, don't go, when all along it seemed like the Holy Spirit was saying, do go. How do you discern? Why, in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, 
you and I were informed by Luke the physician. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. That was a decision born in the spirit. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, you and I were told, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit. So now here you have a twofold statement a decision made in the Spirit, 1921, compulsion of the Holy Spirit in chapter 20, verse 22. How then do we discern what the people there are saying with regard to Paul saying, don't go, and they are speaking in the Spirit. And here now is Paul saying in prior times, the Holy Spirit guided me to go. How do I reconcile all this? Well, you know the answer, so I'll just move right along right now, okay? Now, actually, I'll pause and, and draw a few more thoughts out for you at, at this very point, you see. Because what the Apostle Paul is going to have to do is to be able to distinguish between a prediction and a prohibition. Furthermore, he's going to have to distinguish between a divine warning and human urgency. In that particular situation, both were mingled together. There was a divine warning about what he would be facing in Jerusalem, combined with a compassionate, emotional, human urging not to go to Jerusalem. If he overextended the warning and say, therefore don't go to Jerusalem, as a result would be, he would find the Holy Spirit contradicting himself which the Holy Spirit doesn't do. So what I am saying is that in discerning God's will, discern, distinguish between the divine warnings, particularly found in God's word, and the human urgings, the compassion, the love they have for you, separate them out, look objectively, ask serious questions, and look to the past as to how God is working in the present. The Apostle Paul had found that when God was guiding and directing, through the Holy Spirit, God kept Paul from going into Asia Minor, red light, instead sent him into Europe, green light, and it was by the workings of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit offers the red light, sometimes the green light, and what we have to bear in mind is that there are times where we wait for God to work, and other times we walk forward in the guidance of God's direction, in the waiting and in the moving. It's all of God. Distinguish between prediction as it relates here, you see, to this whole concept of protection and distinguish between the divine warning and the human urging, and now you move on because you're going to have people now who are going to be waving at you at the curb, and you feel like you're getting torn in two. So what do you do now with the people who offer contrasting statements about the will of God? Can I offer you one more personal example? When I was in medical school, 
and I was getting a sense that maybe God was leading me into pastoral type ministry, but was not fully, fully certain that was the case. Sometimes you have to come to gradual conclusions, not sudden. I began to talk with one or two believing professors. And they say, it's God's will that you stay in medicine and pursue neurology. Made reference of this to my father, who has medical patents. He immediately made his way to the Chicago area and said, it's God's will that you pursue medicine. I got a letter from the president of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School saying, we believe it's God's will for you to enter the pastorate. What does a man do? How do you discern God's will? Don't look for easy answers. Work with principles from Scripture and be able to discern between human preferences, others' personal desires for you, and biblical operating principles that guide and direct because it was the Holy Spirit that inspired the Scriptures. So now, what does he have to do? He's going to have to acknowledge the warnings, but say no to the urgings. Sometimes you're going to have to say yes and no simultaneously. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, can you imagine? Once again, he's going to have to deal with a farewell. Accompanied us until we were outside the city, kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, and then we went on board the ship. They returned home. Well, it's time now to be able to get a little more perspective on all of this, and so look what appears on the screen now in terms of the imagery, the pictures, the understanding of it all. There's Tyre, and there is now what's found in modern-day Lebanon. Uh, it jets out into the waters, and there, even today, you'll be able to see this edifice that you would walk through to be able to get into the inner city. Back to the text. So now, what you've seen so far is that when you're trying to discern God's will and you're pursuing God's will wholeheartedly, you and I should anticipate, number one, the loving concerns expressed by believers, but bear in mind that the loving concerns need to be able to be distinguished they might be the same, they may not be the same with the loving guidance of your sovereign God. Onward. A second anticipation, that when we pursue God's will wholeheartedly, we should anticipate, furthermore, the forceful warnings delivered by believers. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, we greet it, the brothers. It seems as though he is always, always finding believers. He wants fellowship, as should you, as should I. We greeted them, stayed with them for one day. And now in verse 8, on the next day, we departed, came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Pause. Philip was the deacon in Acts chapter 6 one of the magnificent seven that were involved in ministering in Jerusalem to the Hellenistic Jewish widows. When Saul of Tarsus produced persecution, people began to flee. Philip would be found in Acts chapter 8, ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch. He would evangelize. 
this is the only time in the book of Acts that anybody is referenced as the evangelist. And it's not one of the apostles. It's Philip. Now, Philip's buddy, his name was Stephen. Stephen was one of the deacons. Stephen was stoned. Stoned for his faith. Martyred. Under the direction of Saul of Tarsus. Can you imagine now the conversations that are beginning to unfold in Caesarea as Philip is sitting there with the door wide open for the Apostle Paul, once known as Saul of Tarsus, who oversaw the stoning of his buddy. Now they're sitting at the table and they're experiencing fellowship. Question. Do you open your door, the door of your heart, to someone or people who have a history in the past of being opposed to God's will but are now in alignment with God's will? Do you allow for grace to saturate your fellowship? People don't hold people to the way things were. Allow the Holy Spirit to work so dramatically in a person's life they are liberated from whatever they did in the past. And by God's grace, you find oneness around the table with them in Jesus, your Savior, your Lord. There they are. And he's got seven. He was one of the seven. He stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who, who prophesied. Well, before we inch much further, we've got to be able to at least get a sense of Caesarea. So if that appears on the screen, take a look. That's where he is. This is a harbor setting. Been there, done that. And it's an extraordinary setting. And furthermore, Herod the Great had some major monuments set up for his own political establishment in that region. This was not a popular place for Jews because it was a Roman province. But here's the Apostle Paul. And here's Philip, and there they are outside of Jerusalem, and they are in a Roman setting, and they are finding oneness in Jesus. There's these unmarried daughters who prophesied, and while we were staying, you're up to verse 10, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, we have bumped into this dude earlier in the book of Acts, and while they're there, we are told in verse 11, he does something, I don't know if it's Christian drama or what, Coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his, this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Is this some kind of weird religious encounter? What's going on here? Well, throughout the Old Testament, you will find a few examples of prophets who will use dramatic means, visual means, to communicate verbal truths. Ahijah did it in 1 Kings 11. Isaiah did it in, in Isaiah chapter 20. And Ezekiel did it in Ezekiel chapter 4. And what he's doing now is this. He is offering a prediction, but he is not delivering a prohibition. He's not saying don't go. He's saying this is what happens when you go. But the others, including Luke now, who's listening in, they want to turn the prediction into a prohibition. 
Look what happens in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go. Not to go up to Jerusalem. What you gonna do? You know, when Napoleon was engaged in uh, the Battle of Waterloo, among those that were taken prisoner was a Highland Piper. I'm reading from the biography. And Napoleon, impressed by the man's clothing, determined to carry on a conversation with the man, his victim. And seeing that he had an instrument with him, Napoleon asked him to play a tune. The Highlander obliged, and he said, Now play a march, said Napoleon. And again, the Scotsman did as he was told. And finally, the emperor said, Play a retreat. I cannot, said the Highlander. I cannot do that. I never learned to play the retreat. Paul is not a man who's going to retreat. And so in verse 13, he's got to do what you and I do when people are grappling with the emotional aspects of the will of God. You have to be able to distinguish now God's will from human emotion. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. Underline what comes next. It's the focal point of this section. Notice what they said. Let the will of the Lord be done. Now you're pursuing God's will. As you pursue God's will, you're going to be dealing with human emotion as well as divine perspective. Take into account the loving concerns expressed by believers. Take into account the forceful warnings delivered by believers. The Apostle Paul did this. And what you're going to have to do is stay the course. In 1973, Winston Churchill was being interviewed by a journalist. The journalist, Stuart Elsop, talks about the British Prime Minister who had been pondering what was taking place at the close of World War II and said, America is a great and strong country, like a workhorse, pulling the rest of the world out of despondent despair. But here's my question. Will it stay the course? Personalize it. Are you pursuing God's will? Are you willing to stay the course? Because if so, here's your third and your final anticipation. That when we pursue God's will wholeheartedly, we should anticipate thirdly the valuable fellowship offered by believers. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. 
he had to say no to some in order to say yes to the exclusive one. The exclusive one, God the Father. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. In other words, when you were willing to stay the course, you instill the courage. Conviction produces courage. They're bringing us, you see, as Luke puts it, to the house of Manaus. Manasin of Cyprus. Was he a disciple of Barnabas? Had Barnabas prepared, been preparing for such a time as this? An early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is important to understand. Ole Hallesby wrote these words. Lord, if it be to your glory, heal suddenly. If it will glorify you more, heal gradually. If it will glorify you even more, may your servant remain sick a while. And if it be your will, glorify your name still more. Take him to yourself in heaven. The will of God in the pain of life. Here's now Paul, living in the danger of Jerusalem. Winston Churchill told the story of his escape from a South African military prison in Pretoria. And after wandering a number of days, he looked over the countryside and he saw various houses whose lights were twinkling in the valley and writes, although a price had been set upon my head, I thought there was a chance of some friendly soul in the heart of that enemy country I, I, I sought and I looked and I hoped that there might be guidance to the right house. I went up to the door of one of the houses, knocked. A man opened the door, asked what I wanted, and I said, I am Winston Churchill. And he replied, come in, said the friendly voice. This is the only house for miles in which you would be safe. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge, which takes us back to some pictures of Jerusalem. And there's the type of house the Apostle Paul would have gone into. In essence, to hear, you're safe here. And there we have it. We need to be able to say it. Lord, what thou wilt, where thou wilt, when thou wilt, to the glory of God. Let's stand together. For you taught your disciples to pray, among other things, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're reminded of the conflicting emotions in the garden of Gethsemane where we hear our Savior crying out, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me.
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. For you remind us of the words from Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Father, help us, like Paul, to be able to pursue your will while accepting your ways, no matter how difficult they'll be, and to be able to develop spiritual discernment in the midst of human emotion, to pursue you, because your will is what's priority in our lives. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.